Nabil Qureshi, age 34, 1983 to 2017. I share a little bit of Nabil's story, and, and there's lots out there on him. You can go explore and read more. Because the last message in this series that I want to just spend a few minutes on, and we'll talk about a lot of practical nuts and bolts things today, is that we are called as a people, if you've been captivated by Jesus Christ, you are called to take kingdom risks for the sake of your King Jesus and to see his kingdom grow. And here we are in the comfort of Vancouver, in post-Christendom Canada, and some of us, we claim to follow Jesus Christ, but are we willing to take real risks for the kingdom? Mr. Qureshi, in the United States and Canada, risked his whole relationship with his family. And you know, if your family system is a strong family system, and if there's a religious background to it that's strong, that those are high risks to take to follow Jesus. I imagine if he went to certain places in Pakistan when he was still alive, that his would absolutely be in danger, perhaps even being in the U.S. and Canada as well, being around family members or others that might be concerned about the family honor because of his conversion. What are you risking, pilgrim, for Jesus? What are you risking? Growth requires change, and change is always a bit of a risky business. Because you're going from the known into the unknown. But as believers, we do that according to faith. Let me read a few more words from the scripture this morning. And then we want to go move into some application points. If you're able to, one more time, would you please stand with me? If you're able to do so, if if it's a trouble, don't worry about it. I want to read to you this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 25. If you want to follow along in your Bible... I'm using the uh, New English translation. But I want to read to you this passage that God has used in my own life many, many times, starting at verse 14. And it grips me every time. And when I read of Nabil's life, Mr. Qureshi's life, and the risks that he took for the kingdom, and willing to go out there and speak and be published, and and all of that, which is just getting his name out, uh, but among those that aren't necessarily going to respond well, in fact, could have quite ill intent for his life, What are we willing to risk? So hear this from the gospel of Jesus Christ, Matthew 25, verse 14. For it is like a man going on a journey. He summoned his slaves and trusted his property to them. To one of them he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. We could pause there, and I'm not going to do verse by verse on this, but to say that talent is a large sum of money, the wages, uh, long year of wages or more, and he went on a journey. So the master goes on a journey. And it says he gives them according to his ability. So the Lord gives them this, this money according to ability that he has already seen in that person. That person may not see it in themselves, but the Lord has seen it in them, and he's given them these talents, these, these gifts, this money in this case. Verse 16, the one who had received five talents went off right away and put his money to work and gained five more. In the same way, the one who had gained two gained two more. But the one who had received one talent went out and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money in it. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled his accounts with them. And the one who had received five talents came and brought five more, saying, Sir, You entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. 
Verse 21. His master answered, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 21. Verse 22. The one with two talents also came and said, Sir, you entrusted me also with two talents. And see, I have gained two more. His master answered, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then... The one who had received one talent came and said, Sir, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. Oh, my goodness. What do we do with the gifts of God when we're operating out of fear? There's a whole sermon right there. I'll spare it for another Sunday. But I was afraid. So I went and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have now what is yours. I give it back to you, right? Verse 26, but his master answered, evil and lazy servant, so you knew that I harvested where I didn't sow and gather where I didn't scatter, then you should have deposited my money at least with the bank, and on my return I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten, for the one who has will be given more, and he will have more than enough, but the one who does not have even he has will be taken from him. Now throw this worthless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Aren't you happy when Jesus preaches the sermon, right? I leave encouraged and wait a second. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you for your goodness in this house, your grace. We thank you that you call us to be people who gather, people who who go, people who also take risks for growth in our personal lives and in our church because in the end of the end of it all, it's all yours, and you desire that we are wise stewards with what you've given us. Wise stewards who take risks that you call us to take. So be with us this morning. Do what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I felt like I was yelling more. I'm like, Wah! It's like, why am I using the mic? No. There we go. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 25. So some opening comments and continuing on this morning in application. In the first three messages here, we're really laying a foundation to talk about what does it mean to be a pilgrim person. And as we look at, you know, getting invitation cards and we look at being more outward in our next season together as a body and being people who really understand pilgrim people are people who are from another kingdom who enter in and and that works so well in Christianity. We are citizens of his kingdom and so we are ambassadors here wherever God has placed us in our cultures, our primary and secondary cultures on earth as we are claimed by Jesus Christ and so we are pilgrim people. So we need to be clear on a couple of points, though, uh, as we wrap this little series up. Healthy things grow. I want you to get a rock-solid conviction in your heart that God desires to grow his kingdom through the local church, and not only just any local church, he wants this particular local church, Pilgrim, to grow. A rock-solid conviction that by faith, God is going to bring about change for the next season in our church that will be about reaching more people for Christ. We have built good community. We have good history. We have good things that have happened in the past. However, we also need to look forward to the next season and that it is God's desire that this place, not necessarily even this building, but this people called Pilgrim, that we are called to grow in depth and numerically to see more people come into the kingdom. 
I remember one of my mentors in, uh, in seminary, and I went to North American Baptist Seminary. They changed the name to Sioux Falls Seminary, but my diploma still says North American Baptist on it. I didn't want to pay the extra 50 for the new one, but whatever. Uh, if if some, one of you feels inspired to do that, go ahead, but uh, I do not. And uh, I remember one of my ministry mentors said this in his church, and he would say this, we count people because people count. And it sort of rubbed me the wrong way as an arrogant young seminary student, you know, a young man who knew everything and was, not, was dumb enough to not realize how dumb I was at that point. But this idea that we need to count, we need to understand that people matter and that each person represents a story and a life and that it matters that we lean into that truth in our church. I want you to understand that sometimes churches can forget this primary great commission and commandment that we've been talking about over the last two Sundays, and we confuse the ends and the means, right? The means to get there. And sometimes we can confuse a tool with what we're actually called to do. We are called to go make disciples. We're called to take kingdom risks. And we'll talk more about some of those practical things in a moment. But sometimes when we confuse it, we forget that we're some of the other metaphors or images, analogies in the New Testament are seed planting. That we're people who are cultivating, who are scattering the seeds of the kingdom. And there may be tools to do that. There's the bag that the sower in the ancient world would have had that the seed was stored in. You notice that God is not concerned about the bag that the seed is stored in. He's concerned that the seed is being scattered and shared. But sometimes we focus on the bag, right? Well, I've had that bag since 1962. You know, it's got a hole in it and the seed's pouring out on the rocky places instead of where, you're, you know, where, it's, fruit, where it's fertile to, to, to sow the seed. Sometimes we get obsessed about the rake, right? If we're using a rake to help. Or the type of tractor or combine to use egg images, which don't really work in Vancouver, but, you know, go down to South Delta. I see there's farming there. Um, you know, we get, we get obsessed about those things. We don't want to be known as a people who are obsessed about the bag that the seed is in or the kind of rake or the cultivating of the rake, or look how beautiful the handle is on the rake, or this rake is brass, or this rake is silver, or this rake is so pretty we just put it in a case, we don't even use it anymore for its purpose. We can get distracted by those things that are to be tools and strategies instead of the primary things. So I want you to have a rock-solid conviction that God desires Pilgrim Church to grow. I want you to wrestle with that with the Lord. And really think about that in terms of your neighbors, the people around the church, the neighborhood that you might live in, whether it's Surrey or where, Richmond, Burnaby, I'm still learning all my Coquitlam, uh, you know, I, anyway, I'm probably naming cities that don't even exist in the area, but uh, Mississauga, no, no, that's too far away. Uh, you know, begin to be focusing on that and being praying for your neighbors and praying that God would use your voice and your actions and your home group and this church as a whole. Now, in order to see the church grow, there are some things, and our leadership team, our board, went through one video with a guy named Dick Hardy, and he talks about three cultures in a church that are sort of foundational things, prayer, a culture of change, and a culture of valuing next generations or young families, that if we don't have those three down, forget everything else, right? If there's not a culture of prayer and there's not a culture that embraces change as that healthy things grow and growth means that you're changing... Uh, and we also embrace the value of next generations, that if we don't have good ministry for kids during our worship gatherings on Sunday, perhaps we need to stop doing some other things until we have something by faith, believing as we invite and we gather that there will be children, that there will be next generations, there will be youth in this church. Dick Hardy talks about those as three foundational cultures of a church that take time to cultivate. Now, I'd like to think that an established church 
Most of those are already here or they're latent. They just need to be called out and emphasized. We're not starting all over again in this regard. But those are things that we need to value as a church. There's other foundational pieces, and that also assumes that you've got a basic orthodox teaching about who Jesus is, things that we read like in the ancient creeds, the Nicene Creed of the church, that we do believe in God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen, that we do believe in Jesus Christ, only begotten of God, eternally begotten of one God, one being with the Father, through him all things were made. Colossians talks about that in Christ, all things hold together, right? And so we, we, we hold on to that. We believe in the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glory. We've got those basic orthodox things down. That assumes that our teaching is rock solid in terms of the big central core dogma of Christianity. We're not reinventing the center of the wheel. The center stays the same. But then we get into those issues of how are we scattering seed? How do we see? How do we engage and change in terms of getting the message of Jesus out? When we gather on Sunday morning, it's really about proclaiming and teaching and then scattering in home churches and then in our lives out amongst the world and the people that God loves all around us. And so those things in place, orthodox teaching, biblical content, and then the idea of the cultures of prayer change and valuing the next generations are huge. Now, when we have those in place, and I hope that we don't have to spend a lot of time in the next months and years uh, selling you on the idea that that prayer is fundamental or or is a foundational aspect of Christian life. And we can talk about prayer and teach about prayer, and we might do some of that in the uh, retreat that's coming up. I don't want to necessarily spend a lot of time wrestling with why we see Scripture as speaking authoritatively and inspired by God, but we'll spend some time with that and that the Bible's not flat. I love that Nabil's conversion is centered around the Sermon on the Mount. That ought to tell us something about the power of the teachings of Jesus Christ and how we ought to know them and be able to speak them and breathe them. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is teaching us a way of reading Scripture. We're going to talk about that, I believe, at the retreat coming up. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And then he intensifies, changes, or comes or brings a new teaching to bear from what was in the law or Hebrew Bible. And then he says, how do we read Hebrew Bible now? It's, it's powerful. Don't want to spend a lot of time having to resell people on that who are already believers. That's an awful way to say that. I'm sorry, that's not in my notes. But to, to reconvince you of the core. But those core things are there. But once they're there, we continue in a culture of change. And how do we share that with new people? And how are we letting the Holy Spirit empower that through a people who are a praying people? Now, I want to go to a little more application. Are you still awake this morning? Say amen. Very quiet today. I don't know if it's just the third. I don't know. I'm still learning. I'm new here. (laughs) Look at your neighbor and say, stay awake. I'm serious. Look at your neighbor and say, stay awake. Find a neighbor. You might have to turn around, some of you in the front rows. <clears throat> Stick with him. Now, what I want to do in the last portion of the teaching time this morning is transition to talk about some really practical things. Pilgrim people are people who grow. Uh, if you're willing, I know this may irritate some of you, but if you're willing, uh, say, pilgrim people are people who grow. Oh, that was beautiful. I'm touched. I'm moved. If you were, uh, had children some years ago, Veggie Tales, I, it, it moved me, Bob. So we want to move into just some, talking about some practical things about growth. And these are going to be more about church-wide or, or system-wide, uh, the, the community here that's formed at Pilgrim. 
And uh, we'll get in more in personal growth stuff and, and teaching often on Sundays. So we're going to talk a little more of the bigger picture, but of course it applies individually as well. To say, to put a little bracket around that or an excursus, a little side trip, if you're not growing personally, uh, there's ways to sort of jumpstart that or, or bring some catalyst to that. One way, of course, is serving. If you're not serving, find a place to serve. You'll find that as you are facilitating a discussion or you're serving in a home group or a ministry team, that as you do that, God often blesses you unexpectedly. Uh, you'll find that in the case of prayer and scripture that there's often a, a barrier or a fog, a wall that has to be pushed through. But once you push through it, you experience a sense of God's pleasure and blessing on your life. But you've got to push through that wall. And the problem is... What makes the difference between so many who have a vibrant faith and not is that those that have a more vibrant faith consistently choose that I will push through the wall. I will show up to worship. I will engage with the Lord in prayer. I will not let my initial emotional uh, sort of set uh, state of stasis keep me away from pushing through that wall. And you push through the wall and you experience that. Anything that's worth anything, there's always that wall or that cloud of resistance, but go through it. Keep going through or as Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going, you know. Go through the wall. Go. I can't say that in a Baptist church. I'm sorry. So let's talk about some practical things. And if you're following along the outline, this would be the uh, fourth section, I believe, where it has uh, six, six things enumerated. So the first thing I want to say in terms of church growth and being people who grow, and this is a weird mix of scripture and logistics, but here we go. The first thing that I, I want to emphasize is that to grow larger as a church, you have to grow smaller. <laughs> and that cuts a couple different directions. To grow larger, you have to grow smaller. You have to be able to say, uh, for example, that we need to have those home groups. They're vital. Because as you get bigger, people say, oh, I know everybody. You don't know everybody in this room right now. You think you know everybody, but you don't need to know everybody. But everybody wants to be known. And that happens in smaller community. And so healthy churches tend to create these smaller groups, call them small groups, home churches, home groups, whatever. But the idea is that you, they're a core fabric of the church, not a tack on on the side, not if I've got extra time, but that I gather in worship and I gather in that smaller group to dig deeper in discernment and scripture and prayer and, and straight up fun too, hopefully. Uh, if the people like each other, there's some fun that happens. Right? But that we also are intentional about going smaller, those missional units, those smaller units of the body, those cells. It used to, big, used to be a big name, call them cells back in the day. But this idea of a smaller unit of the body, that this matters in terms of growth. It also matters in terms of new people coming in and connecting. Some of you that have been here since 1965 or 62 or whenever the church was founded, you have, your life is full of relationships. You don't have a lot of openings in those but as you create new groups within the church and you cheer on those new groups, they have more openings for new people to plug into. It should never be the case that someone comes to Pilgrim, experiences superficial warmth on a Sunday morning, but can never get past that into deeper relationship. If that is the case, it means that we need to start creating more of those groups. And one of the things that churches fear as God begins to move in new ways is, I'm going to lose my church. I'm going to lose this sense of identity I have from thinking that I know everybody. But just keep in mind, that's not true. You don't know everybody very well. You know a few people really well. It's how do we help that happen for everyone who comes in our relationship networks at Pilgrim Church. Amen? That matters. So to grow larger, you also have to grow smaller at the same time in your structure. And something that's easy to multiply, that's not difficult. It's easy for someone to step into, whether they're a new Christian or whether they've been serving the Lord for years, that they can step into that and lead and serve and also be blessed and minister and be ministered to. 
There's more we could say about that, but this idea of getting smaller as we grow, in order to grow. The second thing I want to talk about this morning in this sort of teaching as we wrap this series up is that large gatherings have to be accessible to new people. Would you say the word accessible? Now, we know this in the natural. Uh, if you uh, are coming in a wheelchair, that uh, you, we need to make sure that our buildings are accessible. We have an elevator we've invested uh, lots of money in in order to make that happen. And that's a wonderful example of accessibility to make it if you physically, depending on how your, your mobility is, uh, differently mobile or however you want to use the language that's proper. Um, but we don't often think about that in terms of spirituality. Um, and I am guilty of this because I was raised in Pentecostalism. I can speak the language of Zion, brother, like you can't imagine. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, though God is good all the time. He's wonderful. Oh, that's, that was such a blessing, sister. And, and oh, I, you know, the, God's timing is best. And, and, you know, I mean, I can speak all that and all of it and in tongues, too, if you want to hear it all directions, right? I can do all that. The problem is most people that we encounter do not speak the language of Zion, do they? So in our worship gatherings, when we speak, some terms we need to be able to, like every, every profession has its technical speak, right? Has its technical words. You're, whatever your profession is, you have language that you would use that if you're in the profession, everyone that's in the profession would know. Now, some of that language is important to learn in the church. There are words, there are theological terms. So I'm not saying you throw all of that out, but I am saying that in our worship gatherings, does it make sense? If you're here this morning and you've been at church for the first time, we hope that you may not understand why we sing to Jesus, why we are worshiping, what that worship is all about, but at least you kind of get the flow. Well, they do music, there's teaching, uh, they, fund them, they fund through an offering, uh, they pray for each other or pray for anybody, really, who wants prayer. Uh, but, but the language we use, is it accessible when we talk about God and what God is doing in our lives? And are we finding ways to do that both in our personal lives and in the church? I would say also there's some things in terms of uh, and this is real nuts and bolts stuff. I apologize if you're brand new here today. This is a little bit, but enjoy the ride, I guess. Um, there are things we need to do in terms of updates, like literal physical updates. What's the main entrance? Is it easy to find the bathrooms? What do I do with my child if I have a kid here? Is it obvious? Do we have kids in worship? Do kids go to... I mean, making those things are so important. To, so if you came in for the first time, see this place with fresh eyes and see your relationships with fresh eyes. Is it accessible? literally in the physical and spiritually in our relational language that we use. And again, I'm learning as much as any of you are as well in this. I have not arrived, but I have learned that it's important to wrestle with that. Is our website up to date? Is our social media out there? Are we, people will go to those things online before they would ever, especially younger people, they would rather die a thousand deaths than pick up the phone and call a church. Oh, you know who you are. And some of the older generation is like, I don't know what he's talking about. So I was just saying, some of the younger people, they would, rather, they would rather die a thousand deaths than answer a phone call. You say, why left a voicemail? Well, good luck. That's about a 50-50 chance on a good day, right? So <clears throat> how are we being accessible with who we are as a church? I think the other thing about accessibility is creating on-ramps for people. Would you say on-ramps? Just to make sure you're awake. Um, if your neighbor's sleeping, nudge them gently. Uh, on-ramps, things that help people enter into the church. This is how our home groups can be. Are they open? Are, do we welcome people? Is the material easy? If you're doing, you're going to pick my sermon apart and make it better and discern, right? Well, anybody who comes to worship now has prepared for small group this week. They have material. They may go through and say, oh, I, I, that topical sermon, point three, I think he was a complete heretic. Discuss that in home church. And why? 
And if you really believe that, please talk to me too. <laughs> um, and why? Um, but wrestling with the word, wrestling with scripture, and believing the Holy Spirit's at work, but that makes it accessible to anyone can step into a group. Uh, accessibility can mean things as well as doing invitational events. People are naturally open to, at least if someone you know, you invite them to church, statistically says that many of them are open to that. They may come with you. And so maybe we make sure that we understand every Sunday morning, it may be someone's first Sunday in this church. That's accessible thinking. That someone here today, it may be your first Sunday here. And that we don't, it's not just a club. As one of the bishops of the Church of England said, we are the only organization that exists for the benefit of non-members. Do we exist for the benefit of non-members, Pilgrim? If we haven't been, we need to. Amen? It's time. Accessibility means having on-ramps throughout the year. Christmas Eve, people are open to attending a traditional carols and lessons Christmas Eve service. In church planning revitalization, I have discovered this and, and I've verified it with others who've had the same experience. You know Christmas Eve that people who are non-Christian actually like to come and sing carols and there's a good opportunity to share a bit of the story of Jesus? On-ramps in the beginning of the year, in September, the beginning of a new school year and a new, new cycle of many things in government and school and in our culture that we do a fall kickoff with our uh, gathering and with our home groups. Another opening is Easter time. People are open to those high traditional Christian holidays, but we must use them. We must use them as tools for the kingdom in a transparent, completely open way for those around us. But we see on-ramps that we begin to build into our cycles and seasons as a body because we believe that Jesus is worth sharing and is worth everything. Well, let's move on and we'll get to the end here. Three, three more things, or four more things, rather. Number three, we need to be an equipping church. Paul says this in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, and this is a common verse again. It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. There's some debate as whether pastor and teacher is actually a, a, a hyphenated word or whether it's two, and it'd be two separate categories. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Would you say it with me, to equip? To equip the saints. Think about that just for a second. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, when the Bible says saints, it means anyone who has received Christ and the Spirit's dwelling within them. So if you have said yes to Jesus, you're a saint. You're like, I certainly don't look and feel like a saint. Well, you're in process. The Lord is working with you. We trust the Holy Spirit. But you are a saint. So the job of people like me or called out people in the church and even our elders uh, who are leaders here is not to do it all, but to equip everyone to do it. To do some of it, to model it, certainly, but to equip the body. So he goes on and says, this is what builds up the body of Christ. So growth inward and numerically happens when we are equipping one another. So if you're expecting me to do everything, I actually failed my job. My job is to, to be busy, busy about helping you all rise up to find your gifts and to use your ministry and to minister to one to another and to those around you. So he says, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and we have matured to the full measure of the stature of Christ. And he goes on and talks about no longer being infants, being tossed about by waves, carried round about by every wind of teaching, and the clever cunning of men and their deceitful scheming. It's a great passage. We will teach on it in fullness at some point. But this morning, I want to focus on this idea of equipping, that we empower others, that we build a culture of the church where we encourage people to take risks for the kingdom, 
which flows right into number four this morning to move along. Number four is this, that we embrace risk-taking and failure. That's the only way you ever get to growth personally and as a body, where you are willing to get to a point where you may even fail. When you're doing weight training, there's uh, some, uh, some a process where you talk about doing failure intentionally in order to build up strength. Well, translate that into the spiritual realm. There's things that we need to be willing to fail at in order to discover new strengths that God has for us. We need to embrace risk-taking. I know that many of us are Baptists, but will you say it with me? Will you embrace risk-taking? Did anyone die? No. Okay, good, good. Risk-taking. Now, to be clear, this risk-taking is kingdom risk-taking. We do all kinds of dumb, sinful risk-taking while we're becoming believers and even after we're believers, but you know there's a good side, a redeemed side of that, taking risks with Jesus and the Holy Spirit for the kingdom. Paul does this in Acts 17. We see Paul going up into the Oropagus, giving, uh, engaging with the philosophers of the day, uh, debating with the Greco-Roman scholars and people that are wrestling. He takes a risk. He enters into that territory, that cross-religious territory, and has those conversations in a winsome way. And he's also fully aware. Apparently, he studied the Stoics and the Epicureans because he uses their language. And he begins to engage. That's risk-taking. He doesn't know where the Holy Spirit's at work in whose heart, but we find out by the end of Acts 17 that some of those are compelled to go deeper and some even to believe. But if he never took the risk to enter the Oropagus, if his old culture held him back, whether it was his old pilgrim church culture or his Jewish church culture, he said, I can't do that. He went into there knowing that the spirit within him was greater than whatever was a spirit was in that place. That's a culture bathed in prayer. I can take a risk with my neighbor and my feelings may be hurt, And I may be rejected, but I'm going to take the risk. And you know what? They may say no about an invitation or a relationship, but I'm going to keep building relationship, even if they never say yes to Jesus, because I love Jesus, and the love of God pours out of me, and I've got more than enough if I'm filled up with his love, because his love never runs out. But I'm going to be that kind of person. I'm going to take risks with my relationships. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, this beautiful passage, I love this passage, the NIV translation says this, starting in verse 19, Paul's use of his freedom is how it's titled. Though I am free and belong to no one, it's a good Canadian there, right? Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave, or maybe that's, I don't know, anyway, North American, I don't know. Okay, ignore that. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. It's interesting here. Paul loves people outrageously, and yet he's willing to talk about numbers. Interesting. Verse 20, to the Jews I became a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, meaning the Mosaic law, I became like one under the law, though I am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Verse 21, to those who not having the law, meaning Gentiles and everybody else that weren't from Paul's ethnic tribe, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, meaning the law of Christ of love, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. He's taking risks. He's letting secondary and third-level things be third-level things. He's reordering them. In verse 22, To the weak I became weak, to win the weak I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And we can talk about how he's cooperating with the Holy Spirit within him. Verse 23, I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Which, of course, is right relationship with God and the final justification of what he did with the gifts that he had been given. Nabil Qureshi 
was wired in a way that he was a thinker and he was passionate about sharing. He was that way in Islam. And as he encountered Christ, God used those things that were part of his character that were given as divine gifts and turned them into operations for the kingdom of God. Each one of you has gifts and ministries and talents. How do we become risk takers? The last two are simply this, intentional scattering, and then we'll, we'll end with additional motivations. Intentional scattering. In the parable, the rewards are given for taking risk. The five multiplied the five, the two, the two, and the one didn't take the risk, didn't even put it in the bank. And the Bank of Canada just raised rates, or will be raising rates, supposedly a couple points, something, right? Didn't even do that. Didn't take a risk. We see that God honors taking steps in faith. If we want a new future as a church, we've got to be willing to take the steps. And you know, if you've lived very long, that God doesn't give you all of the upfront, this is what's going to happen when you take this step, but rather he gives a direction and a leading, and then he meets you as you take the step. That's where the faith becomes a reality. We often say, no, Lord, I would like a million more dollars. I want at least two more zeros behind everything in my bank account or the church's bank account. And then we will take this step. You will never see God move that way. I'm never going to tithe or proportional give to the church until the Lord uh, puts an extra zero or two in my bank account miraculously. Then I'll give. Nope, that's not how it works. If that neighbor comes up to me and initiates a wild conversation about a dream they had with Jesus, then I'll talk to them about Jesus. Oh, oh, oh. You take the risk, and then you might find out Jesus has been showing up in their dreams for the last three years, and nobody around them has ever said anything, and they've been waiting for somebody who's a Christian to say. There are stories of people who've had conversations where they've literally said to, the, said to God, or who's ever up there, up there, as if God is up, well, anyway, if you're real, then show yourself to me. And the Holy Spirit was pinging your heart because you're starting to sensitize yourself, saying, I should talk to that person. But you're like, no, no, that's, no, we don't do that in Western. No, no, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't. And that person might have prayed even that day, Lord, if you're real, show yourself to me. You take the risk. The Holy Spirit manifests in that. The Holy Spirit's wooing and drawing out there. You have no clue who's ready to become a believer and where they're at on their journey. Scatter the sea. Take the risk with your relationships, with your time, with your resources. That's how the kingdom grows. So we embrace a risk-taking culture. We believe in intentional scattering. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, Consider this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Using this analogy of the seed again. Each one of us should give what he has decided in his heart to give, but not out of regret or compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And he goes on and he says this, just hang with me, just hear this. Verse 10, now he who supplies the seed to the sower in the bag, and the bread for food will supply and multiply your store of seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will, you will, this is him speaking, you will be enriched in every way to be generous on every occasion, and giving through us will produce thanksgiving to God, for this is the ministry of service. Not only supplying the needs of the saints, the inward part, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanksgiving to God. 
Now, he's talking about a relief uh, offering here for famine and drought, but it also applies, and he begins to expand it well beyond that to all of what we are giving out of God's abundance. One of my favorite uh, quotes is from a theologian, Walter Brueggemann. I don't agree with everything he says, but I love this quote. You'll hear it many times. We probably need to put it on the wall somewhere because I'm going to say it again. He says that in the ancient Israel, the battle that they constantly fought was between, will I trust in God's superabundance, that he owns it all, that it's all his in the end? Or will I be driven by anxious scarcity? I can only handle so many relationships. I can only do so much. I, 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 I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Always saying I can't, never trusting that when it comes to kingdom things, that he's able to supply the seed, multiply, and do abundant things. God's superabundance. The Israelites in the desert... When they turned away to foreign gods, they wanted the God that was made that they could see out of stone, but he does not live in tents made of human hands. <laughs> but he's everywhere working. Will we join him? Holy Spirit's at work around you. And finally, the last point. And everyone said, <laughs> oh, some of you are going straight to, never mind, I'm going to, Lord, forgive me. What are the motivations? What are, if you need a few more motivations for, for getting a rock-solid conviction that pilgrim people are people who grow in depth and outward and that God desires that for this church, I, I think additional motivations for me are this, that Jesus desires that everyone is rooted and grounded in his love, that that becomes their core identity. And you will hear that theme again and again and again because it's central to the gospel. That Jesus died and rose again in order that we might lean into the truth that our identity is as people who are beloved by God and are called to follow him and to follow Jesus and to let his spirit dwell within us. Some of you, the Holy Spirit's been working on the outside of you. You don't have that language, but you've been feeling a pull or a tug or a curiosity to this Christian thing. And you're like, I thought that was dead like 200 years ago. And yet here you are, and here we are, <laughs> responding. When you say yes to Christ, what you're saying is, I want that thing that's working on the outside to come and dwell in the inside and start working on me from the inside out instead of just from the outside in. And you do that in community. It's not just Jesus and you, but it's in community, in the work of the Spirit, in, in the gathered community of people who are captivated by Jesus or curious. So our motivation for sharing Jesus is that we realize that if we're rooted in God's love as our core, it changes how we do human how we do human, period, right? How we do human life. It changes how we're supposed to approach conflict. It changes how we approach the world around us, the creation, caring for the creation. It changes how we look at uh, uh, all the things that we are. And so often in our cultures, we are told to put our core identity as, as our, our education or our career. We're told to put our core identity as our family. We're told to put our core identity as a religious system. In fact, Jesus breaks the religious system within Judaism. We're told to put our core identity in our sexuality. We're called to put our core identity add to the list. And yet Jesus changes that. So additional motives. We want people to come alive in God's love. We are completely transparent about that. There is no bait and switch. And then there's one other motivation that as you lean into the truths of ancient Christianity also motivates us. We are told that in some way this God who created creation out of love took the risk that people would rebel against it, and we did, and bring evil to bear, and spiritual beings and wickedness and brokenness happens and sin happens, but God prepared a plan to deal with that too in Jesus from the beginning of time. But we're told that 
there's more to come. And I'll leave you with this before the takeouts. Christians are also motivated by the concept that this creation is not all there is. It's a scandal. In fact, that's the word in the New Testament about Jesus' death on a cross was a scandal, a scandal on a stumbling block to our intellectual and, in the case of the Jews, to their religious view of what the Messiah was supposed to be, to the Greeks and to the Jews. It's a scandal on. And then he, also the scandal on, the scandal is that he is going to come back one day after he died, rose from the dead. So Christians are also motivated by this idea that this is not all there is. And when we're lost in a good song and time changes and our relationships change as we're jamming together or we're playing soccer, it's still soccer in Western Canada, right? Yeah, yeah, soccer, football, whatever, you're playing. And you get lost in the game, the competition, the adrenaline, and time changes and your relationships change. When you listen to a good play or you hear, read a good book and you get lost in a rapture, you go into the mountains and you see the natural beauty and you're enraptured in time and how you think about yourself change. Those are glimpses of a greater thing that God intends for the new creation. And then when we get enraptured in that, those are tastes that not everything now is as it was intended to be, but there is a creator who is going to bring that to fullness one day and he will come again. So Christians are motivated by sharing the love of God, your identity now, but also your identity to come. And that one day he will come and wrap up this creation project. Christians debate on what that looks like, but he's going to come and you'll know it and it will be different. And we want everyone to enter that one fully alive instead of still really wrestling with, do I want love as my center when that world happens? Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Now, dear friends, do not let this one thing escape your notice, that a single day is like a thousand years with the Lord, and a thousand years is like a single day. He says, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness, but as being patient towards you because he does not wish for anyone to perish, to go into eternity rejecting the love of God, but for all to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow, but is patient towards you. And then it says this in verse 12. Since all these things are going to change in this manner, and he talks about imagery of the end, apocalyptic language, and he says, well, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, that we are to continue on in following Christ and being outrageous in our faith and risk-taking because we are waiting for this day, and as we work for the kingdom, we also can hasten the day. That's really weird if you think about it, that God has hinged the new creation in part on the local church being faithful to taking risks for the kingdom not as an escape clause, not as this whole thing's going to hell in a handbasket, but because it's loved of God, and so loved of God, in fact, he's stalling. The global church in the south and even Asia is exploding and growing. The church in Canada and the U.S., thank God for those of us that are coming in because we often are bringing Christianity back in terms of our cultures and our people where the global south and the east where it's exploding but we need to rethink about re-evangelization in a post-Christian, post-Christendom place. And part of that is to continue to be faithful for the hastening of the return of the Lord. And that's a whole other like 10-part series. So stand with me this morning as we do the takeouts and the worship team comes up.
I actually had fewer notes. I thought I would go shorter this morning. I apologize. <laughs> so as the worship team comes up, we're going to end with a song and a, and a benediction. But the takeouts this morning are just simply, remember, as you discuss in home group some of these things and make it better, and you can probably preach it better, so do that in your home group. Uh, God wants Pilgrim to grow. Number one, God wants this church to grow. If you're part of Pilgrim, get a rock-solid conviction that God desires growth inward and numerically. They are not to be pitted against each other. It is not either or in the New Testament. It is both and. In fact, Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. And then in Acts, where it repeats some of the words of Jesus Christ, he said, Judea, Samaria, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he doesn't say it, when you're ready, go to Jerusalem. When you're then next, go to, then next, go. No, it's all at once by the power of the Holy Spirit as different gifts are activated in the body. And we have all of it right here in Vancouver, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Whoever's not in your normal Jerusalem, they're in your Samaria, your Judea, or the ends of the earth. And we've got it all. So we want to continue that. God desires pilgrim road. Take out number one. Take out number two. If you follow Christ, you need a rock-solid conviction that God has called you into holy risk-taking through invitation and hospitality. You, you, are, you are a walking embassy for God's kingdom. You are in the hospitality and invitation business for God's kingdom. Find ways to do that that are winsome and are relevant, and that means it will be changing based on our cultures that we're ministering to at that time, as Paul tells us, becoming all things to all. And then finally, the last takeout, the final one is this. I don't know where all of you are at with Jesus. And you may not be ready to say yes to Jesus today, but as an ambassador of the kingdom of God, as someone who has been captivated by Jesus, as someone whose family was not Christian, but became Christian through a messy little church in a small town in the middle of rural South Dakota, I know none of you know where that's at, look it up later. I know that in this room this morning, there may be someone that needs and is ready to say yes to Jesus Christ. Jesus, come and live in me by your spirit. And you may not fully understand that. In fact, Christians who are theologians with PhDs are still unpacking that. If you don't understand, you, you, you believe in order to understand. If you want to understand it all first, it's impossible because part of it's in a relationship and experience. I didn't understand everything about my wife right away. If I said I didn't understand everything about women before I get married, well, Lord help us, Right? <laughs> Guys are more straight. Well, never mind. Another day. But some of you are with that with Jesus. I need to understand everything about it. I need it. But the Lord's saying, I'm calling to you. Will you take that step? If that's you, it doesn't have to be high drama. It doesn't have to be like the weird TV preachers. You can simply say in the quietness of this moment, Jesus, come into my life. I, I'm taking the risk. I'm taking the step to believe that you are who you say you are. And I'm going to take that step, and he will meet you there. You may feel something, you may not. But please let me know or let one of our elders know. We'd love to celebrate with you and pray with you as well at some point today or later this week. But let's pray together, and then we'll sing and go. God, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for these beautiful people who are in all different places with you but I believe that a vast majority of them desire to see this church move into a new season, celebrating the good things of the past, but moving into a new season together. Together. Lord, we pray for that kind of growth in our, in our church, and then we want to follow it up with the action 
that's empowered by that prayer, by your Holy Spirit. For the person here today that may be ready to say yes to you, Lord, give them the strength they need to take that step. If they're not ready, it's okay. You know what's going on in their heart. I don't. But if they're ready, that's you. Jesus, come into my heart. Simple prayer. I turn from rejecting you as God. I turn from trying to order my life around me or my work or my cultures or my whatever. But I want to order it around you. I want that life that never goes away and never runs out. Continue to work at Pilgrim, Lord. We place this church into your hands because it's not our church, not my church. It's your church. In Jesus' name.